And while I'm preaching this message, could I just get some people around the auditorium who will keep it covered in prayer? Just be a little intercessors for me, that the word would have the authority that it needs to have. I need a couple more. All right, all right, wonderful, wonderful. As I said, we're preaching from, they're teaching from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, reading from the TNIV version. Today's nearly inspired version, yes. And I'm going to, um, first, uh, the first part of this message is just kind of giving historical background here. It's kind of teaching time. And then we'll apply it uh, theologically to our lives. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. That's how they did it back then. A couple of notes here. Uh, Caesar Augustus is right here, the, right now, at this time, the most powerful man in the world. Um, in fact, some would argue he was the most powerful man in all of history up to that point, even more powerful than Alexander the Great. Uh, Caesar Augustus had, uh, in 27 uh, AD, roughly 20 years prior to this event, he had really ended the Roman, uh, the Roman Republic and made it into a Roman Empire. He had consolidated the Senate's power under himself. So he was, uh, by far and away, the most powerful man in the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, he held all the power chips. Uh, this wasn't a bad thing for Rome. It ended a lot of civil strife that was going on. And uh, so far as we can tell from history, he was a fairly popular uh, ruler. By, by ancient Roman standards, he was a pretty decent man. Of course, he was, he, was, he was debaucherous and murderous, as they all were. But relatively speaking, as, as, as emperors go, he was pretty good. Um, Luke emphasizes his unprecedented authority when he says his decree went, in, went out into all of the Roman Empire and that everyone had to go to the hometown to, to, to register. So he's really, Luke is, for reasons we'll see here soon, holding up the authority of Caesar Augustus. When Caesar makes a decree, everybody hops to it. You don't want to buck horns with uh, Caesar Augustus. Uh, the census was about uh, t uh, registering people for military service and making sure that everyone was, taking, uh, was paying their tax, uh, taxes. Now, some Bible critics have argued that Luke was inaccurate at this point. And the Bible critics are always saying this sort of thing. Uh, they argue that Luke is mistaken because Quirinius took a census in 6 A.D., um, and that is far too late for this record because Jesus was born sometime around 7 or 6 B.C. Our, our calendars are about 6 or 7 years off. And so Luke has it wrong by 13 or 14 years, the Bible critics uh, argue. In fact, some Bible critics, they used to argue that the whole story was made up because uh, no one would take a census this way. How inconvenient to have to go to your hometown to register. But you've got to wonder, why would Luke make something so ridiculous up? His audience would know that he's making up, since they're the ones who are in that environment. But in any case, we now know from historical records that this is how they took censuses back then. It started with Caesar Augustus. And every 14 years, uh, they would have people return to their hometown and, uh, and, and register. Um, but the, the criticism that Luke is wrong is simply, uh, simply unfounded. You'll note in this passage, it says this was the first census that Quirinius took which presupposes that he had a second. Uh, in fact, the word that's translated first, protos, 
in this particular grammatical construction can mean before. It can be translated before. So Luke could be saying this was the census before the census uh, that you all know about. The one that was taken, uh, taken in 6 AD was a very famous census because it caused an absolute riot among the Jews. So everyone that Luke's writing to knows about this, this uh, riot in 6 AD. Luke is simply saying, oh, well, before that one, he had another census, and that's the one I'm talking about. It was this lesser-known census that happened in 7 or 6 BC. Okay, that's the historical background. Let's, let's move on. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth uh, in Galilee to Judea. Bible critics used to say that Nazareth didn't exist because we had no record of it, but now we do, so the Bible critics don't say that anymore. If you wait long enough, uh, evidence always comes in to support the reliability of Scripture. And he went to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. The important part of that verse is this. Uh, Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem because that's where he was, was born. And Bethlehem was the city of David. And a lot of the lineage of David still stayed there. And Luke makes a point of that because it's important to know that Joseph was of Davidic descent. The reason is because the Messiah, according to Old Testament prophecy, had to be of Davidic ascent, uh, descent. And so he's just telling us here that Jesus, even though Joseph wasn't his biological father, because Jesus was conceived of a virgin, yet he was his legal father, and so uh, Jesus had a legal right to the throne of David. It's also important because according to Old Testament prophecy, and this is where it gets really interesting, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. There was a prophecy that was given 750 years earlier that specified that the Messiah had to come from this little town of Bethlehem. It's found in the book of Micah, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. Listen to this. Whose origins, or the Hebrew word could be translated, whose goings forth are from of old, from ancient, and the Hebrew word there, olam, could be translated eternal, from eternal times. This is a really interesting passage. 750 years before Christ is born, this prophecy tells us two things. Number one, where the Messiah will be born. He's got to be born in Bethlehem. Number two, even though the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, he, he doesn't start existing with his birth. His going forth, his activity, has been from all eternity which is telling us that the Messiah was going to be both human, because he's going to be born, but also divine, because he exists eternally. What's really interesting is that so far as we can tell, Jews didn't pick up on that. They were expecting a, a strictly human uh, Messiah. And yet here it was in the book of Micah. Once Jesus is born and we get fuller revelation, we look back and we say, oh man, that was, that was there all along. 750 years ahead of time, it was prophesied. Which... By the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a, a believer, how do you explain that? Just wondering. Okay, let's move on. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And he gave, and he gave birth to her, for, and she gave birth. Did I say he? Okay, this is the first service I've caught that. Uh, while they were born, the time came for the baby to be born, and he gave birth to her firstborn. All right. <laughs> Correction, that should be she. I didn't even no notice that last time. 
uh, Mary, this is profound. Mary was the one who gave birth to Jesus, not Joseph. Okay, just to be clear. Right. I mean, it was miraculous, but it wasn't that miraculous. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. A couple of historical notes. Uh, it says, while they were there, she brought forth her firstborn son. Now see, I always, up until this Wednesday when I was researching this uh, sermon, I always thought, I'm sure most of us here were taught, that Mary and Joseph wandered through the night and finally came to Bethlehem and knocked on the door of the, you know, six days in or, or you know, the Ramada or whatever was there and, and just said, hey, you know, can we have a room? And they said, sorry, all the rooms are full. I thought it was like a midnight at 1 o'clock in the morning transaction, didn't you? But it says, while they were there, which implies that they were there for some time before, that, before she actually gave birth. And I just didn't know that. Kind of ruins one part of the Christmas story for me, but anyways. It says he was placed in a manger. The manger, the word, the word is, and I wish they translated it this way, feeding trough. Uh, it was an animal feeding trough. Now, that's the only reference, it's on the basis of that, that everyone supposes, rightly, that Jesus was born in some kind of a stable. But we don't hear about the cows and the camels and the other things. We just hear about this feeding trough that, that Jesus was placed in, which tells us that he was born in some kind of a barn. It says they wrapped him in clothes. A lot of the translations have swaddling clothes. And here again, I used to believe, in fact, I remember preaching once or twice, that that just refers to rags. Like, I, so I was thinking they're in the barn, and then Mary starts to give birth to the child, and then they just got to find some rags to wrap him in. I learned Wednesday when I was preparing for the sermon that those are just normal clothes. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're the clothes, it, it was a special kind of clothes for babies. They wrapped the baby up very, very tight uh, to keep the insides warm. And uh, they also believed in the ancient world that it helped the limbs grow well. So they wrapped the baby in these special cloths, these long cloths, uh, kind of like they mummified the baby. It was just baby clothes. So there was nothing particularly uh, unique about Jesus' baby clothes. And I repent of having preached otherwise in the past. Um, because, you know, of course they were preparing for this birth. It wasn't like they were talk, caught like, totally off guard. So they had normal baby clothes as they were waiting for the baby to be uh, born. Now it says they wrapped him in clothes, in those, in those swaddling clothes, those tight clothes, those baby clothes, because there was no guest room, which tells us that Jesus, their, their interest there was keeping the baby warm, which is, tells us that Jesus was born outdoors, uh, in the cold, in the elements, which also tells us something about the season he was born in. Um, but it was because there was, no, there was no guest room available. This guest room can mean one of two things. It could mean that, that Joseph and Mary went to uh, some relative or friend's house that they had in Bethlehem, and they simply had no spare room in this friend's house, so they had to give birth to this child out in like what would be called today like the garage where they would keep uh, the animals. Uh, it could mean that. Um, but the word could also be translated in, an inn, a commercial inn. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have like hotels like we have today, but they did have... The closest peril would be like, have you ever stayed in these hostels? If you go to Europe or third world countries, they have these like hostels, uh, which are not really inns, but, but you, you can get a roof over your head and a bed for a small price. Um, and they used to have these in the ancient world where you'd, you'd, you'd travel to a place and you'd just get a roof and, you know, they had, they'd have a public bathroom uh, and that's about it. Everything else was on your own. 
And that, in all likelihood, is what Mary and Joseph went to uh, at whatever time uh, they, they arrived there. They stayed in this hostel, or, or in the, uh, there was no room in the hostel, so they stayed out where the animals were parked. And in the course of staying there, uh, they gave birth to, uh, to, to Jesus. There's an old, um, a very ancient church tradition. It actually originates in the middle uh, or early 2nd century that Jesus was born in a cave which I think is probably historically reliable. But we know that these, these commercial inns were often uh, made next to caves because you had a ready-made place to park the animals. And so we have to picture Jesus being born in a, in a cave, an unventilated cave, probably an overcrowded cave, uh, and then was, uh, after the birth, placed, wrapped in these tight clothes and placed in this, uh, in this feeding trough. And that's the hi- history behind this passage. Now let's apply it. What does it have to say to us kingdom people here this morning? There's a couple things it has to say. I might bring this up again at a later message. But the point I want to make this morning is this. It teaches us a lot, I believe, about how God checkmates his opponents. About how, God, how God's wisdom operates in the world. And I think this is an important message for a lot of us here today to hear. Um, As you look at this scene, you would think, according to the normal reasoning process of the mind, that Caesar is the one who's calling all the shots. The people are going where they're going because Caesar said to go there. Caesar is the top dog of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is like the top dog of all the different empires of the world. And so Caesar here is doing what normal emperors do. He wants to make sure that he's getting the taxes that are due him because he wants to fortify and expand his kingdom. And he wants to make sure that he knows where all the males are so that he gets them to enlist and and do their service in the military. Uh, As kings always do, uh, Caesar is interested in fortifying his empire, advancing his empire, looking out for the self-interest of his empire. This is the way the world operates. There's a power game of empires. And uh, the, the self-interest of one nation comes against the self-interest of another nation. And so there's conflict. And so the history of the world is this history of power encounters while the Caesars of this world go to war for the fix-the-world rights uh, to impose their way of doing things on the rest of the world. And the peons, you and I and all the rest, we get the crumbs that fall from the master's table as we squabble with each other over our various rights. And that's kind of the history of the world. And it looks like this is just another slice of the history of the world as one more Caesar is flexing his muscle and getting his way and fortifying his empire. But the passage clearly shows us that while it looks to the natural mind as though Caesar is calling all the shots, there's something else going on here. While Caesar's calling his shots, uh, God is using Caesar's calling of the shots to call some shots of his own. Caesar Augustus makes a worldwide decree and everybody hops to it. So the world's full of hustle bustle. Everyone's traveling. We got to get to our place. Otherwise, Caesar's going to get mad. We got to register. We got to pay our taxes. All that hustle bustle is going on. But beneath all the hustle and bustle, in a place where nobody is looking, God is fulfilling a 750 year old prophecy. In fact, God is using Caesar's decree and the hustle and bustle of the empire. To bring to pass, to bring to fulfillment a plan that really has been been in place in some respects from the beginning of the world, in other respects from the time of the fall. Under the radar screen of everyone's attention, Caesar, when he makes a decree, he decrees it to the whole world. When God decrees, he only tells a couple of people. 
and it goes unnoticed. So there's only a few people on the planet who know what's going on, who know what's really going on, beneath the hustle and bustle, under the radar screen. Joseph and Mary know. Later on, a couple of shepherds are going to find out. These weird astrologers from Persia, they, 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 they get a little clue of what's going on. Everybody else is ignorant. But under the radar screen of the hustle and bustle of the world, God is carrying out a plan. Uh, there is this little outcast baby laying with these animals in a feeding trough with a so- poor and socially rejected mother and father. Uh, and in, in that little environment, beneath the hustle and bustle, beneath the power encounters, beneath the almighty decrees of Caesar, in that environment, something subversive is going on. Something cosmic is going on. Something countercultural is going on. Something revolutionary is going on. God is planting a seed of his kingdom that will eventually overthrow all the kingdoms of this world. The point here is this. Caesar and everybody else, except for a few select people, they think that Caesar is calling all the shots. But as a matter of fact, the one who is really controlling the scene is a God who everyone else is ignorant of. God is carrying out his almighty plans. Now here's why this is important to us. From what we can tell in Scripture, this isn't like the exception to the rule. God is always doing this. This Christmas story is a microcosm of the way God always operates. According to Scripture, kings and princes are always making their plans, always making their agendas, always making their decrees. Uh, the privileged people of the culture, the, the wealthy, the politicians, the people who are, who, are, who are the high and mighties of the culture, they're always making their plans, and they all got their fix-the-world strategies that collide with other fix-the-world strategies, which creates wars that need themselves fixing. That's always going on. But while the armies are fighting and the politicians are pontificating and the Caesars are decreeing, all the while, God is working with his subversive plan, with his countercultural plan, with his revolutionary plan, with his kingdom of God plan. Here's what it says in, what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who's the Lord's therapist? <laughs> Where does God go when he gets depressed or confused? I, I've always wondered about that. Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And then listen to this. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. You don't notice a drop when it's fallen into a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. When you're weighing things, you don't take into consideration the dust because it's inconsequential. He weighs the islands. The term could actually be translated continents, as though they were fine dust. You can't even hang on to it. It just falls through your fingers. Here's the point of the passage. It looks like the fate of the world in the course of history is determined completely by the Caesars, the high and mighty, the politicians, the armies, the power brokers. But in reality, at all times and in all places and in all circumstances, there is an infinitely greater intelligence that is at work a subversive intelligence, a countercultural revolutionary intelligence. People ordinarily assumed, unless you're in the category of a Mary or a Joseph or the shepherds or the Magi, unless you're in on God's hidden wisdom, unless you're in on the secret, 
you'd be inclined to think that it's the George Bushes of the world or the Osama bin Ladens of the world or the Fidel Castros of the world or the Vladimir Putins of the world or uh, the Jintao of China's of the world. It's the mighty world leaders that are determining the course of history. And our fate is in their hands. And if you think that, no wonder you're living in a lot of anxiety and fear. But what the Word is telling us is that those folks with all their power and all their schemes and all their brains and all their armies and all their bombs, they're just a little, they're dust on a scale. They're a drop in the bucket. They're, when it comes against God, they are inconsiderable. Now, they can resist God's will. They do all the time. They can make stupid and even evil decisions. They do all the time. They can make terrible decisions that cost many, many people their lives. They can do a lot of destruction. That is true. But what we need to know, kingdom people, is this. That is not the final word. The final word word is this. In all situations, as was the case here in the prophecy uh, that was fulfilled through Caesar Augustus, in all situations, however dire the situation looks, you got to know that God has got the upper hand. Because all the planning and all the wars and all the strategy and all the power, all the nations, all the governments of this world are a drop in the bucket. They are dust particles on the scale. So if Caesar's going to make a decree, God says, okay, I got a decree of my own. In fact, I'll use Caesar's decree to fulfill my decree. If Caesar wants to flex his big muscle, God says, fine, flex your muscle. I'm going to flex some wisdom, and I'll use your muscle to illustrate how wise I am in doing it. If Caesar's interested in collecting taxes, God says, I don't care much about that issue, but I'll tell you what, I'll I'll use your self-interest in collecting taxes to fulfill one of my self-interests, and that's bringing salvation into the world. And if Caesar Caesar is interested, as as the high and mighty always are, on consolidating his power and shoring up his power and advancing his kingdom, then God says, well, you know what? I got a kingdom of my own I want to shore up. I got a kingdom of my own I want to advance, and I'll even use your kingdom planning to fulfill my kingdom planning. In fact, about 60, 65 years after this event, another Caesar came along, even worse than Caesar Augustus. His name was Nero. And he decided he wanted to exterminate all the Christians. I'm convinced he was completely demonized. Wanted to exterminate all the Christians. And so God says, I hate that. I, I, I come again. That's, that, that's anti-kingdom for sure. But if that's how you want to be, you know what? I can even use that for my plans. If you want to exterminate uh, my kingdom people, I'll use it as an opportunity to grow my kingdom people. And so while Nero was putting people to death... Thousands converted because of the way he put them to death. God uses everything to his advantage. He is, that's why the Bible says he's the Lord of all the nations. He's the Lord of every Lord. He is the King of every King. He's the God of every God. He's the sovereign creator, almighty, omnipotent God of the universe. And people can, and demons can, and Satan himself can make plans against him, but he finds a way to turn those plans to his advantage. Now it's time to get theological. Put your theology caps on. You got them on? Okay, let's dig into this. Because this is an important point too. A lot of people assume, I'm convinced misguidedly, they assume that if God has that kind of control where he can guarantee that every plan a person or angel makes fits into his sovereign plan and advances his cause in the world, if God has that kind of power, then he must be controlling everything. He must control all the decisions that humans and even angels make. If, 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 if Caesar Augustus ends up playing into God's hand, 
when he makes a decree to have all the tax to collect taxes and have everyone register, then these people misguidedly assume God must have been the one to make him make that decree. God must have predestined everything. How else could God have that kind of control? How else could God promise that he can get the Messiah over to Bethlehem? Now see, that has, among other problems, tremendously negative theological implications because it means that everything every ruler has ever done, God is behind it. That God is controlling what Caesar Augustus does. Therefore, God was controlling what Hitler did. God was controlling what Mussolini did. God was controlling what Pol Pod did. God was controlling what every murderous, debaucherous ruler in history ever did. And when you come to that conclusion, God's kind of behind the scenes, and he's the one whose who's plan is to slaughter, you know, uh, uh, six million Jews in the Holocaust. Well, that can't help but pollute your picture of God because that God doesn't look at all like the person of Jesus Christ. But we're told in Scripture that all of our thinking about Jesus Christ is to be centered on him because he's the word and the image and the form and the manifestation and the revelation of God. If you think that God has to control things in order to ensure that all things fit into a plan of his, I want to submit to you that you're underestimating the intelligence of God. Keep your thinking caps on. Let's look again at Isaiah chapter 40. Notice this. This is an interesting thing. Isaiah says, Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? And then later on it goes, For this reason, because of the mind of God, because of that, he says, Surely all the nations are like a drop in a bucket, and they're to be regarded as dust on a scales. The reason the nations are so small is because the mind of God is so great. It's because of his uh, incredible intelligence. This passage emphasizes God's control of the world by emphasizing not God's manipulation or God's power, but by emphasizing God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's intelligence, God's understanding. Now, there are times in world history where God displays his power, for sure. But the ordinary way that God steers history is by his incredible wisdom. He doesn't need to manipulate people because he's so smart. He doesn't need to override free wills because he's so smart. He doesn't have to make uh, rulers or anyone else his puppets because he's so smart. If you think God needs to control individuals in order to ensure that those individuals will fit into a divine plan, you're underestimating God's intelligence. Think of it this way. You and I lose control if we're not controlling things specifically, uh, we, you and I lose, lose ability to ensure that things will go our way if we, if we have to deal with possibilities as opposed to one thing that we control. We lose that because we have a finite intelligence. We're limited. We're stupid. Uh, we can't entertain a lot of possibilities. We've got to spread our intelligence thin to cover you know, various possibilities. But if you believe that God is infinitely intelligent, that there's no limit to God's intelligence, now think about this. That means that God, you can't fraction up infinity. It's not like God, you know, is, is losing, losing intelligence because of the number of possibilities he has to consider. If you believe that God is infinitely intelligent, then you believe that God can consider each and every one of a trillion, trillion possibilities to the trillionth power. Each one of those possibilities he can anticipate and have a plan for as though it was the only possibility. In other words, for a God of infinite intelligence, there's no difference between a possibility and a, a certainty. 
A God of infinite intelligence could be as prepared for any possibility as though he himself had predestined that possibility. It is as though all of his attention is on every possible way uh, things could go. Okay, I'm confusing you. Let me break it down. Let's say you were playing God in chess. You're going to lose, all right? If you're playing God in chess, and here's why you're going to lose. It's not because God's controlling you. It's because God is so smart. Whatever move you make, you've got free will. You can make a lot of moves. But whatever move you make, God has been anticipating that very move from the beginning of the game. Now, you could have made other moves. But if you had made other moves, we'd be saying the same thing. God was anticipating that move from the beginning of the game. And God has a perfect plan in place as to how to use that move towards checkmating you. Whatever you do, you're free. Whatever you do, you're just going to play into God's hand. The game may take a little longer or shorter depending on how good you are, but I've got to tell you this. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how smart you are. Your intelligence, you've got a uh, 200 IQ, wonderful, bravo. It's a drop in the bucket next to God's intelligence. It's dust particles on the scale next to God's intelligence. You're going to lose the game. It's going to checkmate you. If Gabriel, the archangel, came up to God and said, Hey, God, I can help you out here. You know, you're playing Greg. He's pretty good at this game. Uh, you know, uh, here's a blueprint. You know, so, so you, here's a blueprint of how he's going to move. God would say, don't insult me. Now, if I had a finite amount of intelligence, this would be of some assistance. But, dude, I got infinite intelligence. Whatever, game he, whatever move he makes, it is as though he had to make that move because I've been looking at that very move from the foundation of the world, from the beginning of this game. The point is this. God controls the game, the chess game of world history, not by manipulating things. A lesser intelligent God would need to do that, but not the almighty God that Isaiah is praising. God controls the, the flow of world history and makes everything fit into his providential plan by virtue of his intel, infinite intelligence. Think about this. If God controlled the world by controlling all the details of the world, by controlling what people do, if everything was something that he had an intention behind, there would be no need. In fact, we couldn't. Praise God for his wisdom. Because it takes no wisdom at all to do, it, to do something just because it's in your power to do it. Observe illustration A. I can wiggle my little finger. Yes. It is in my power to wiggle my little finger. It will do whatever I want. But no one would praise me for that reason. There, it takes no character to wiggle my little finger, and it doesn't take any intelligence to wiggle my little finger. But if you're playing somebody in chess, that takes intelligence because you're not directly controlling all the variables, which means you have to rely on your smarts to win the game. A chess player who wins by virtue of their infinitely inte infinite intelligence is smarter than and more praiseworthy than a chess player who's controlling everything his opponent does. The Bible praises God's wisdom all over the place, exalts God's wisdom, because God uses his wisdom in stirring the world, he's smart enough so he doesn't need to be manipulating and controlling all the variables. That's why Paul says, for example, Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He's not just an Arnold Schwarzenegger up there, you know, controlling everything. Rather, he's an infinitely wise God who anticipates everything that free agents might do, everything humans might do, everything angels might do. He anticipates it and has a plan in place as to how to use it to move the world forward towards his checkmate. If Caesar wants to tax people, God says, okay, fine, I can use that checkmate. I've been anticipating that from the foundation of the world. If Judas wants to betray Christ, 
God wishes he wouldn't do that, but if that's what he's going to do, God says, I can use that. Checkmate. If Pharaoh wants to harden his heart, God's up there saying, dude, I really wish you would repent. But if you want to play hardball, I can play hardball. I can fit you into my sovereign purposes. In fact, you know, from the beginning of the world, I was anticipating that you might do this. And so I can raise you up to be an object lesson to these other nations. You want to play hardball? I can play hardball. You'll fit into my sovereign plan. If the Assyrians, that wicked nation, they want to expand their territory and take over other countries, God looks at them and he doesn't like what he sees. But if that's how they're going to be, God says, okay, I can use that. My children need disciplining right now. I'll let you have free reign over them. A less intelligent Less glorious God would need to be a puppeteer God to ensure that he can use everything to his advantage. But the infinitely intelligent God, he gives you free will, and yet he still can guarantee that everything you do will fit into his providential plans. Very quickly, three practical, important implications of all this. Number one, and I talk on this one a lot, so I'm just going to mention it, and, uh, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, number one, it means you don't have to blame God for what Caesars do. You don't have to blame God for what anyone does. What people do, what angels do, is about them, and it's about the angels. It's not about God. God uses what agents do, but he doesn't determine what they do. So you don't need to be wondering, why did God have the terrorists drive the planes into the World Trade Center or any other atrocity? That's just what terrorists do. That's, that's kind of the way that, that, that this, this demonic-filled world operates. God uses it to his kingdom advantage, but he's not behind it somehow secretly, secretly uh, uh, steering the planes. It, it doesn't fit into some kind of pre-plan that he has that he's going to steer intentionally the planes into uh, the, the, the World Trade Centers. You don't need to blame God, and you shouldn't blame God for the atrocities that happen. When we think that God is controlling Hitler or terrorists or whatever. Now your picture of God gets polluted. And if there's anything important to growing in the kingdom is to know that God looks like Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for the very people who crucified him while he prays the prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's your picture of God. Don't go looping up all the mucking manure and bloodshed and violence of the world with your picture of God. Point number two, be still and let God be God. Be still and know that God is God. I don't know how you, oh boy, I'm over time. Okay, this is going to be fast. I don't know how you feel about things, folks, but maybe I'm just getting old, and when you get old, you tend to get more pessimistic. I don't know. I'm actually more optimistic than I've ever been, but not about the world. <laughs> well, I'm optimistic for the world, but not for any reason in the world. Um, I, 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 when you look at this world, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's out of control. It, 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 is a, it is a train that is just, it looks in the natural eye, I guess it's going down the road and, and going down the track and, and you can't slow it down. You look at just the, the, the exponential increase of sin. You look at the violence of the world. You just look at how we use sex to sell stuff. Uh, some modern technologies blow my mind and I really worry about them. Some of the stuff we're doing in the name of science is just scaring the kajibers out of me. You look at the problems of the world. Consumerism, I don't know what it is, but this year in particular, the consumer, the, the consumer addiction of our culture is driving me nuts. It's bugging me a whole lot. Do you see that, that, that uh, on Black Friday, they call it Black Friday, when, when they open the doors at 5 in the morning and everyone rushes in there to get the good deals, and that's fine, not judging anyone for doing that. You know, our family did the same thing. You get good deals. But on the news, it showed up. These people are trampling one another. Fistfights were breaking out because they were trying to get each other's toys. An old lady falls on the ground and someone kicks her while no one stops to help the poor lady. I'm thinking we're not getting the meaning of Christmas here. It's just, I, I'm just thinking. 
And you look at this world, and, and you know, it's like there is no, there's no solution. There's no solution. If there was a solution out there, we would have found it by now. But see, here's where you need to know. You need to have a trust in the infinite wisdom of God. It says this in Isaiah. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed. Oh, listen to this. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. They're going to carry out wicked schemes. Don't. Other people will be worried. But you know the subversive intelligence of God is involved in everything. Don't worry. Do what you can to resist it in a, in a Christ-like kingdom way. But in the end, trust that God is God. He says in Psalms, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. It's going to happen. It may take longer than you'd like, longer than i like, but it's going to happen. I will be exalted in the earth. He is God. There is a God who is in control, not controlling all the evil stuff, and not everything's hunky-dory. We live in a war zone. There's a lot of junky, evil, demonic stuff that goes on. But you've got to know this. In the midst of the whole thing, God is active, using it to move the world towards checkmate. Friends, checkmate is coming. Let that minister peace to you. Let that minister peace to you. The, the final thing I want to say, the third implication is this, is this. Be a people. We need to be a people who are always asking God for his wisdom. He's got it. We don't. And he knows what's going on in this world. He knows as the world is unfolding how to take this and to take that, this Caesar decree and this event, and how to weave it into his providential plan. And he wants us to participate in moving the world forward towards the kingdom of God. And James, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it generously. If you lack wisdom, and we all do lack wisdom, to find out what is God's plan right here, right now, in this moment, what would you have me to do? Ask God for wisdom in dealing with your past. I want to say this. Uh, so many people live in regret. They live in regret for wrongs that have been done. I talked to a lady several months ago who was just beating herself up because of some silly, stupid, wrong things she did. And as a result, she... Oops, <laughs> that's what I think about time. Yeah, goodbye, Claude. Uh, forget the time. Uh, she's beating herself up because uh, the, the things she did now means that she can't... Uh, see her kids except for like once every two weeks for three hours and an officer has to be present. And so she's just loathing herself. Saints of God, kingdom people, you got to live with your past. You got to deal with the past for sure. But to live in regret of the past is not to trust the wisdom of God. In fact, it's demonic. It's a demonic emotion. We regret as a way of atoning for our own sins or trying to convince ourselves that we're better than we were back then. If we just make ourselves miserable enough, that proves that we've, that, that proves that we've improved. And, and it somehow pays for the past sin. There is no paying for past sins, folk. Jesus Christ pays for past sins. Look to him, get forgiven, and move on with your life. Move on with your life. And then look for the wisdom of God. Here's the thing. What happened maybe shouldn't have happened. Maybe it was really, really bad. Maybe it was absolutely diabolical. Maybe you hurt people and you can't pick up the pieces. It's a Humpty Dumpty scenario. There's no putting it back together again. That happens in life. But don't let the pain of that and the wrong of that be the last word. Because even there, God's wisdom, that infinite wisdom, he's been anticipating that from the foundation of the world, and he's got a plan in place as to how he wants to use it and weave it into his, his, his agenda. Be looking for that. Be asking God for the wisdom of how... You can actually be, be thankful for the past, not thankful for the wrong that was done, but thankful for how God can use the wrong to forward your life. In all things, the Bible says, he's working together for the better, for those who love the Lord and are called, into, uh, call, called according to his purpose. Even the wrongs that you've done, no regret, none. Be done with it. Learn from it 
and move forward with it. Ask God for wisdom to show how he can weave it into a providential design and let it go. Be asking God for wisdom on how to move forward in your life. At all times, we need to have our walkie-talkie on. God, you are wise. Our slice of reality is so small. His is so expansive. Ask him for wisdom. Uh, wisdom on, on how to deal with your difficult marriage. Uh, you've got your little myopic perspective. You, you, you're going to miss the plan that God has unless you're asking him for it. Wisdom on how to raise your kids. Wisdom on, on knowing how to go forward in life. Now that a, a part of your body isn't working the way it used to. Uh, God, give me your wisdom. How are you going to use this to your advantage? How are you going to use my mistake, my weakness, to your advantage? How are you going to use my troubled marriage to your advantage? Uh, ask God for wisdom and in terms of the job decisions that you've got to make, the financial decisions you've got to make. We need to be a people who are always seeking God, going to God and saying, God, give us direction. Help us to listen. You are the infinitely wise God who has anticipated every detail from all eternity. And we look to you to get our marching orders as to how we should go forward. I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, I want you to know that, uh, again, the altar will be open if you have any prayer need and you want to come forward in prayer. I encourage you to do that. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Christ or you're not living in relationship with Christ, I want to encourage you, don't walk out of here in that condition. Start the walk of the kingdom. Come up here to my right, uh, your left. There'll be a person who will just love to give you a Bible and some other free stuff and explain to you what's involved on becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'll close with this benediction. Father, you are the infinitely wise God, the sovereign Lord of history, the Lord of all lords, the King of all kings, the God of all gods, the creator God of the universe. We can't begin to fathom the magnitude and beauty of your brain, but we just praise you for it. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us tap into that on a regular basis to know how to deal with our past, to know how to deal with our present as we move forward, Lord God. Your plan is in place. I pray, Lord God, that we would find security and peace that passes understanding, knowing that however bad things may be, however bad things may be, where sin does abound, your grace does even more abound. Help us to trust that you can overcorrect our mistakes, overredeem our past, overbless whatever curses we brought on ourselves, Lord God. We love you. We praise you. We surrender our life to you as we walk out of here to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Go build the kingdom.